0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here this morning to worship and praise you and to sing your glories, to hear your word, and we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. We want to please you because you have delighted in us, you have called us Out into this life of faith. We seek now, we ask now, Lord, would you help us again and again to behold you and to be drawn deeper into this life that you call a life of faith so that we can follow hard after you in all things. Renew us where we are faltering. Strengthen us where we are weak. Encourage us when we are already walking with you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in and through our time together this morning. We pray all of this in your strong and faithful name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick Whitlock. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to be with all of you this morning and to join us. Uh, it's always fun also to see more uh, intergenerational faces. We're a congregation that is largely college students during the year. We typically have three services, and now that we're near the end, uh, a graduation weekend is happening. We've gone down to one at 10 a.m., and it's great to be with all of you who are still here and in town or visiting. So thanks for joining us. And if you graduated or are graduating, happy graduation. Got to go to a ceremony yesterday. It was pretty fun to hear Mitch Daniel speak. Uh, And it's also Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers Side note, that's a reminder to those of you who have mothers. Uh, I'm really bad at remembering dates, so I have to be reminded myself. Also, my mom lives in Delaware, and she likes to listen to these sermons, so since you get the microphone, you get to do some things like this sometimes. Hi, mom. I love you. Thanks for listening. I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for your prayers. So thank you for joining us. We're glad you're here this morning. And we're in this time that Rob, our lead pastor, likes to call free skate, which I think is a thing from the 70s when they had skating rinks. And you could go out and anybody could go on the floor and skate. It's giving Rob a hard time. So we are not in the middle of a sermon series right now. We're doing a bunch of sermons that i have just laid on our own individual hearts as we take turns preaching. And this morning, as I was thinking about the season that we're in, graduation weekend, And as many, even those of you who are not graduating, you're going off into the summer. The things you have to do, internships, starting new relationships, uh, having old relationships end, transitioning as friends move or people get married, starting work or adjusting to a summer schedule, or moving back in with your family, which can be both delightful or terrifying, depending on your family. And so this morning, I want to look at what it means as we think about transition to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because at at crucial times like this, transition times especially, it can be very helpful to come back and hear again from the Lord, let Him remind us, what is life really about? What is of first importance? What really matters? About a month ago, I was feeling pretty stressed I was anxious about some decisions I had to make. And we had just started a three week sermon series on Colossians uh, to finish out the semester. And I preached that sermon, the first one, and it was called The Whole Gospel. And in that sermon, we were looking at what is God's message proclaimed to us, the message God wants us to hear. And we said that it's Jesus Christ is Lord of everything, He owns it all. There isn't one square inch of all of the earth that he isn't in charge of. And therefore, if we know him, we are completely secure. Because we know the Lord who created us. We know the Lord who rescued us. We live under his kingdom domain now. He's our new zip code. The circumstantial reality of my life is as rooted in God as it is in my geographical geographical location, West Lafayette the first and foremost reality in my life, we said, is the death and resurrection and life of Christ. And that that is in us now. If we have the Lord of everything, we have everything. So I had just preached that, but three days later I woke up very anxious. And I woke up troubled. And I woke up thinking about... The fear of the Lord, which doesn't occur in this verse, but it was very related. I remembered this passage that we had talked about in Colossians. Colossians 1, 9, and 10 says, So from the day that we've heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. As I woke up that morning, I began to pray and reflect on fear and anxiety and how they work. And I realized that when I'm fearful or when I'm anxious, my mind is fixated on life outcomes that I don't want. I have a problem or a question or a decision, and I'm afraid that if I choose poorly or even if I choose rightly, but things don't work out, that I will have to live with this terrible disappointment. I will be hurt. My life will be hurt. My life will be more broken than it might already be. My life won't go as I hoped. And essentially, I am afraid that I won't be pleased. I am afraid that my desires won't be achieved, that I will be completely disappointed. And I think in that moment, in that morning, God was applying to me the gospel and was calling me out in my continual need for growth, that many days I am more afraid that I won't be pleased with my life rather than afraid that I won't please God with my life. I am more afraid that I won't be pleased with my life rather than being afraid that I won't please God with my life. This is what the Bible means when it talks about pleasing God. I live a life fully pleasing to Him because all of my life is fully about Him first, anyway. He's the Lord, not me. And in the Bible, the idea of pleasing the Lord, of a life pleasing to God, is strongly connected to this theme that gets repeated from Genesis to Revelation. And it's this phrase called, that goes, the fear of the Lord. In fact, the whole idea of pleasing God or fearing God is one of the most prominent themes in the entire Bible, and it's what we're going to focus on this morning because it is the Bible's comprehensive phrase for a fundamental quality of those who have an experiential knowledge of who God is. The fear of the Lord is the proper and foundational response to someone who is a friend of God. It is a fundamental component of the Christian life a life that is pleasing to Him. So we're going to look at that this morning. To live a life pleasing of God, what does it mean to have the fear of the Lord? So we're going to ask this question: What is the fear of the Lord? First of all, why don't we fear the Lord, and how can we grow in the fear of the Lord? So first, what is the fear of the Lord? It's a really strange statement. But first, two things. We can see that, one, the fear of the Lord is based on a certain view of God, and then we'll see, too, that the fear of the Lord leads to a certain kind of life that is connected to that view of God. So first, the fear of the Lord is based on a certain view of God. What we see in the Bible is that fear and awe and wonder are correlated. There's a direct connection. Here's just two quick examples. This happens a lot, but we're just going to look at two brief ones. Psalm 33, 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. These are parallel lines in a psalm talking about all that God has created and how he is seen and displayed in his created works. And it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the world stand in awe of him. These are the same things. Standing in awe and standing in fear of God is the same. In Malachi, the prophet, it says, God is speaking, and he says, My covenant is one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and they feared me. They stood in awe of my name. Well, that seems strange. A covenant, this promise. He is saying that life is centered around a holy fear. And that the way that life works is this. There's this view of God which understands he is the first principle in life. He created everything, and it's amazing and wonderful the more we learn about the world and see how could it be that one God made all of this. We stand in awe of what he has done. That he alone created it, the world, and created us within it. And then God says in Malachi, this whole direction of our life is intended to be dictated by this thing he calls a covenant promise. And it's centered around the fear of the Lord. But it's interesting because he says... A covenant of fear, but then he also said a covenant of life and peace. And you're like, well, how is fear and then life and peace related to one another? Those seem like opposites. But the fear of the Lord is centered on God, and it's related to life and peace, not terror and harm. So what we have to do is start to branch out from our maybe initial reaction to the word fear and see if the Bible means something a little broader and deeper than what we might initially think. The fear of the Lord is based first on this right view of God that he created everything good and he created us as part of that. He reveals himself in scripture and when we see who he is, it makes us tremble with awe and reverence that he designed this life in this world to be one of life and peace, not harm and not awfulness. Let's put it this way. Here's an overly simplistic analogy to try to drive home the point. I saw a video recently of Dwayne the Rock Johnson Showing up at one of the movies he came out in, showing up at the theater with a bunch of kids. And he surprised everyone at the end while the credits were rolling, and he came out. And then suddenly, the guy who was in the movie is right there. And some of the uh, kids who were there, a bunch of 12 and 13 year old boys, they all started yelling at the rock, like, hey, it's our friend's birthday. And so he asked him, hey, how old are you? And the boy just stumbled and then just went quiet. It's like he just looked at him like he was amazed. And the rock joked with him, that he's like, yeah, sometimes as we get older, we forget our birthdays. Uh, we forget how old we are. Because he asked them, how old are you today? But the kid was just so in awe of, of his favorite action hero being present that he couldn't speak. The fear of the Lord is kind of like that. We're in the presence of someone so much greater, who has so much power that we almost don't know what to do with it. Or to put it another way, when you like somebody and you have someone that you're attracted to and you just hope with all of your heart that they might find you attractive too and might like you and might love you, doesn't it seem like in those moments a lot of stuff starts to go wrong? You finally have a chance to talk to her and you just stare at your shoes. He finally comes over and starts a conversation and you're so nervous you just talk about your favorite ice cream for 15 minutes. Something happens to us when we're in the presence of those that we revere, that we find awesome, full of awe, that we are attracted to and delighted in. And it's not simply a fear of rejection. It's a desire not to disappoint because we already hold this person for who they are in high regard we don't want to disappoint those that we love, not not just so that they'll like us, but because we already like them knowing who they are. So the fear of God and awe are correlated. God is worthy. He is, in an old phrase, terribly awesome, wonderfully powerful. And when we've seen him, we know that something else is intended to be the center of our lives, to capture our attention. And this leads us to the second thing we see about the fear of the Lord. It's not only a certain view about God, but after seeing God revealed to us, it leads us to a certain kind of life with God. To really see and behold Him is never simply a seeing and beholding, but becomes a living and a doing. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 15 in the Old Testament is one of the most perfect summaries of the fear of the Lord in the Bible And it describes the kind of life he intends for us when we know him. And it says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth and all that is in them, Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. Once we realize that this great God doesn't want to harm us, but wants a relationship with us, we are moved in our hearts into relationship with him. Just like we had to stop bumbling over ourselves at a certain point and actually develop a relationship with that person we were attracted to we come and have the same kind of thing with the Lord. The fear of the Lord is about revering God, giving due honor to God and respect to him and wanting to then please him. It's not the same as people-pleasing, doing things mainly to get other people to like us. We are doing things in the hope that God will honor us. We do it because we want to honor him. And we live a new kind of life, which often is connected to walking in his ways, so obedience and service to him. We do the kind of things that he says are good to do. And what's the reason why? Did you see that in Deuteronomy? He says, what's required of you? Fear the Lord, serve him, obey him. But why? Because look, God owns everything, and yet out of everything, he looked at you and loved you. Did you see that? The Lord set his heart in love on you above all peoples. What? God own, owns everything and he wants to have a reciprocal relationship with us. This is what the same thing the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says that he's so overwhelmed by God's goodness to us that he can't help but try to persuade everyone else that God's orientation to us is to to have a relationship with us that guarantees us that covenant promise of life and peace beyond all comparison. This is ours in Christ forever, he says in 2 Corinthians 4. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he keeps going and says, So we make it our aim to please him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. We make it our aim to please him. Why? Because he's loved us with this everlasting love and given us an incomparable glory. One of the difficulties of our English translations of the word fear is that too quickly the word fear to us conveys fright and dread. But the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says his whole entire life and ministry is based on 2 Corinthians five eleven, knowing the fear of the Lord. He says, everything I'm doing is based on knowing the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on to say that this love of Christ compels us. What does it mean that the love of Christ compels him? He knows the fear of the Lord, and so he's compelled by God's love. Well, those things are directly related to one another. To be compelled by something, is, it means that our attention is so intensely occupied by this thing that urges us onward. And Paul is saying, I am so absorbed by the love that Christ has for me that it is the guiding and directing force of my entire life. And then he describes, what, what is this love? What is this love of God that God has for us? And he says, Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Chapter 5, verse 15. The Lord set his heart to love us so completely that he would die in our place. You know someone loves you if they'll exchange places with you. The idea of fearing the Lord in the Bible is so linked to loving God because God first loved us. This is the core idea of the fear of the Lord. When we come face to face with God and we see Him for who He is, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Him because we are overwhelmed by the magnitude of His love for us. And so we then have a godly life with Him. But can you already see a problem with this? You already see that there's a struggle. Why don't we fear the Lord? We just saw God loves us so much that he died for us. So this sacrificial love, the Apostle Paul says, is what compels the Christian life. To put God first in everything. And not ourselves. And our life then is to look like his, sacrificial love, giving our lives away to others so that they too can know the goodness of this God. But then we still have to think, Jesus died for me. Why did Jesus have to die for that? Did you see in that verse we just read, the last one, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And right there we see the words no longer live for themselves implies that what we've been doing all along and what God God, Jesus killed was me living for me. Me trying to force and shape the world and my life into My fears into what pleases me, even if I didn't please God. And this, the whole Bible connects this to the fear of the Lord and says, the whole problem of humanity, the core problem of humanity, is the fear of the Lord is not what compels our loves. It's not what compels what we do. Our reverence is towards someone else, most of all ourselves, and our desires. And our external actions reveal this. What we honor and hold in highest regard most of all is us. Romans 3.18 says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. As Paul is working his way through this great epistle of Romans trying to lay out what the core problems of humanity are, he essentially summarizes it by quoting Psalm 36, which is that verse, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He is summing up what's, what our greatest problems are, that we do not long for God. We, as he described this, we don't long for God. We don't seek the good of other people. We speak deceiving lies to ourselves and others. Our hearts can be angry and bitter at life. We can cause pain to others, and his summary statement of that is, Because there's no fear of God before our eyes. Why is that? Why is it so hard for us to honor God? Remember what we said, the first thing about the fear of the Lord, this certain proper view of God? And yet it seems like he's saying, that view is not before our eyes. We may have heard that God loves us. And we may feel content to say, that's great, God loves me. Without realizing that this love includes a reverent, holy fear of someone greater than us. And when we lose him from sight, when we lose him from our view, we put something else in that place. And we don't think that we're accountable to him any longer. We're just accountable to ourselves. You do you. Literally, the context of Romans 3 says that. Verse 19 says that we, the whole world will be held accountable to God. I think what Paul is getting at is when we don't have the fear of God before our eyes, it's essentially because we don't really believe that God's in, uh, because of God's love for all that is good, he will discipline sin in this life and he will judge it in the next at the beginning of the sermon, I confess that I woke up one morning realizing that so much of my life is essentially me being afraid or concerned that I won't be pleased with my life. That is the whole not having the fear of God before my eyes. I'm afraid that my desires won't be achieved. I will be disappointed that even as a Christian, someone who is called to fear God above all things, many days I'm still more afraid that I won't be pleased with my life rather than saying, I want to please you with my life because you gave yours for mine. Fear, in all of its forms, seems to be a basic reality of human life. I was reading some developmental psychology, and a psychologist named Hans Eysenck is a pioneer in the modern biological study of personality out of the London Institute of Psychiatry. And he says that emotions are so basic and universal that they're the combinator denominators of all human experience. And he reduces those down to three essential behaviors you can see across all people groups because he studied these across 36 countries and found the same thing everywhere. Fear, aggression, and extroversion. Fear helps us avoid danger. Aggression enables us to fight danger. And extroversion or sociability enables us to face danger with composure or as a unit of people so according to many developmental psychologists, our natures are organized around a hab- our, our habitual reactions to threat. One of them actually said, I now have a very tragic view of the human condition. <laughs> he, he essentially says, what I understand about life is that everything is organized around fear and threat. And he said, doesn't sound very positive at all, does it? But it actually matches up to one of these core struggles we see in the Bible. The biggest question that remains is, what is our biggest threat? seems like getting fear right is highly important. The book of Proverbs links the fear of the Lord to constant danger. Multiple times. It tells us things like this, that if we do not fear the Lord, our lives will come to ruin. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. Blessed is the one. Blessed can also mean happy. Happy is the one who fears the Lord always. Contrast, but... Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity, into disaster. To be blessed is to be happy. Happy is the one who fears the Lord always. So happiness is linked to fear. Again, may sound strange to us, but the Bible puts these things together constantly. But the opposite of this, it says, is to close or harden our hearts to God. And that causes our lives to fall into disaster or calamity. The word harden, it means it's used a lot of times in the Bible as just as much as fear. And it's talked about as a stubborn and consistent decision to not put God at center place in our lives. To think that he's not really worthy of being listened to or heard. It comes down to unbelief. And what I mean by unbelief is not atheistic unbelief, like I don't think God really exists. These are about people in the Bible. It's about people who do think that God exists, but choose to say, I know he's there, but I don't care. Proverbs gets at something that I think is true for us. Aren't we always looking for happiness? And yet it's saying, happy is the one who has fear of the Lord. That's the center place of happiness. As we head off into the next phase of our lives, whether it's just this summer or we're thinking about big future decisions, what is it you hope will make you happiest? It's such an odd thing, but Proverbs 28 is telling us that the one uh, who is always filled with fear of the Lord is also the one filled with the greatest happiness. What is it that motivates you that compels your life forward? The desire for success, the pursuit of some achievement, the need to prove yourself to your parents, the need for love from a significant other, the need for respect or status from your peers? Are you driven by anger against someone who has wronged you? Are you driven by needing to be constantly affirmed and liked? If any of those things has greater control over your heart, a greater controlling influence over the realities of your life, then God's sacrificial love for you will not put you in a happy position. Or rather, the only thing that will put you in a happy position, said that backwards. The only thing that frees you and liberates you to live a life of happiness and satisfaction is the fear of the Lord. Another proverb says this, Proverbs nineteen twenty-three. the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Again, related to threat or danger or harm, though, he will not be visited by harm. We are in danger when we are apart from the Lord, but there is rest and satisfaction in life when we fear the Lord, when we put him in a better place in our lives than we put ourselves One other proverb, Proverbs 23, 17 and 18, puts it this way Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. What does the fear of the Lord have to do with envy? It's once again a contrast, so they're opposites. But what is envy? Envy is this simultaneous admiration and resentment that arises from an excessive preoccupation with ourselves and our present lives. It's what we might call the fear of man rather than the fear of God. Envy is looking around at the lives of others or looking at our lives and simultaneously admiring the other people's lives and yet maybe resenting them because they have the life we wish we had. It's what happens every time we go on Facebook, I think. I want their life, and I may even think I deserve it instead of them. Envy is not focused on inward reverence for God and for all the hope that he gives, but focused on getting what I want right now, even at times at the expense of others. And so there's at least two kinds of fear of man. The first is this, envy, that we have an awe and reverence and worship for what can be achieved in this life now. And especially if others have achieved it, we want it. We see what they have, we want it. We don't fear God, and instead we fear not getting what we desire. But the second kind of fear, man, is simply dread. It's a fear of being cut off, either cut off in our lives from hope of some kind. We fear that what others can do to us. We fear what others think of us. We fear future harm and live to protect ourselves because we've been harmed in the past. We live in anxiety and worry. We people please because what others say about us is our life. Without their favor, we either attack them or we withdraw from them, but our relationships become distorted. We cannot stand entering into conflict because we have either too high or too low a view of ourselves, or too high or too low a view of others and what they think of us. Without the fear of the Lord, all of life goes towards calamity, towards disaster, towards trouble. We look around and we see and what we see and what we hope for is getting our lives perfectly fixed now, getting what we want now. And this is the thing that actually prevents the Lord the fear the fear of the Lord from being before our eyes. We see the here and now, but we can't see him in it. Let me give you an example that I think leads us from why we don't fear the Lord but also then shows us how living under the fear of the Lord liberates us and enables us to grow. How do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Well, there's a woman. There's a story of a woman I heard, and she went to counseling because she was in her late 30s and she had never married. Her family and her part of the country believed that there was something radically wrong with any woman of that age who was still single. And she wrestled with shame. And she felt that she had somehow failed as a woman. Because of this, she also had a lot of unresolved anger against the man that she had dated for years but who had been unwilling to marry her. The counselor told her that she was too wrapped up in her family's value system, which said, In order to have personal value as a woman, you have to have a husband and children. This is what makes you worthwhile. And the counselor said she was bitter against the man she used to have a relationship with because he had become, he had come between her and the things she had to have in order for her life to have significance. So the counselor proposed this. Throw away such an unenlightened view and devote yourself to your career. If you come to see yourself as good, as an accomplished person, you will see you don't need a man or anyone else to give you that sense of worth. So the woman began to throw away her family values, her culture's view of women, and to pursue a career. Uh, she began to drive herself deeper into her career, and she began to feel better. But she decided that e- or discovered that even as she threw away her family's view of women and threw herself into her career, it didn't enable her to get over her resentment of that man, her ex-boyfriend. All at the same time, she also started going to church. And for the first time, she went to a church and heard the gospel clearly for the first time. And she heard the gospel, the good news that God came to give us, was not what she had thought. It was not that we amass a good record in our lives. We do enough good things. Show ourselves worthwhile. while Give our good record to God. And then God saves us and loves us because we've shown him we're worth it. Instead, the gospel, she heard, was that Jesus Christ amassed a perfect record. He gave that record to God on our behalf and showed that we are worthy not because we proved our worth, but because he proved it to us, that he alone could give us what we needed. And when you believe in him and put your faith and trust in him, that record becomes yours. His record is yours. His perfect score is yours. There is nothing else to be gained She had been trying to earn it. As she heard this message, she realized that she was completely loved and accepted by the only one in the universe whose opinion really counted. And then she began realizing that the well-meaning counselor was only half right. Indeed, it was wrong for her to seek her self-worth through male affection. That was a trap. It made her view of herself contingent on what men thought of her. But now she was being asked to look at her career and her accomplishments as a way to feel good about herself and have self-worth. And that meant that instead of her self-image being dependent on what a man thought of her, her self-image was dependent on achieving success at her career. And as she understood and heard the gospel and believed that God actually was there for her, giving her what she needed more than anyone else could, she started to ask, why should I leave the ranks of of men, (laughs) of People who put family as first place in their life and exchange that for putting career as first place in my life. Won't I be just as devastated by career setbacks as I have been by romantic ones? No. I will rest in the righteousness of Christ. I will learn to rejoice in him. Then I can look at men or careers and say, what makes me beautiful to God is Jesus, not these things. Do you see what's happening in her life? Her life had been centered around the fear of man, the fear of people, fear of what her family thought of her, fear of what men thought of her, fear of what she thought of herself and whether she'd be good enough at her career. There was no fear of God before her eyes. What was before her eyes was envy, was people pleasing, and she never felt free. She couldn't love, she couldn't care, and she couldn't serve others. She said herself very well because she was too afraid and bitter until she met and knew Jesus. And then suddenly what captivated and compelled her heart was the fear of the Lord, that God overwhelmed her heart with awe and wonder and joy, that he loved her so much that though she was trapped in proving her worth to everyone around her, including herself, he had proved her worth by giving himself. So suddenly she was compelled by God's love for her. Her attention was so intensely focused at looking at him and she was so absorbed in the love of God, the love that Christ had given her, that it started to guide and direct everything she was doing from her relationships to her family to romantic uh, relationships with men and even to the point where she was able to finally forgive the guy who had hurt her so deeply. She found that she was less anxious at her job because of the magnitude of Christ's love. She was free to fail and free to succeed. She essentially came to have what some people would call emotional wealth, a sense of being loved so deeply that when others wrong us, we can even afford to be generous to them and able to forgive them. Her anger against her former boyfriend and men in general subsided. A few years later, much to her surprise, she fell in love and she got married. And she realized, looking back, she said that she would have had a really hard time if she'd married her former boyfriend because she was looking to him for things that only Jesus could give to her. That She was, would have looked to him to affirm and accept her, prove her worth in every way. But she had found that only Christ could do that. And so now she could have a reciprocal and mutual relationship with her husband because they were rooted in God's love for them. How do we grow in the fear of the Lord? The good news is that the Bible says, though, once we were a people who did not have the fear of the Lord before our eyes, Christ himself, God himself, restores us into relationship with him by graciously accepting us when we had rejected him. What happens when the fear of the Lord becomes real to our hearts, as it did to this woman? The fear of the Lord first beats out all other fears, It wins. We come to behold God, the magnitude of his sacrificial generosity towards us. Our fear of circumstances, fear of people, fear of people's opinions about us, fear of not getting what we want. They crumble under the compelling beauty that he had every right to judge us, and yet he took the judgment on himself so that we might be free. And then what happens next? We begin to feel regularly convicted that all sorts of areas in our life are out of sorts. Family, romance, careers, the culture, all of the things we look to to fulfill our deepest needs come up short. And we realize that uh, we've only come to know the fear of the Lord if we can say, I am in deep and desperate need of what God has done for me in Christ. I can't fix all my problems or heal all my wounds or find all my happiness apart from him. I have actively walked away from him. Yet he actively walked towards me. I have become convinced that I am not good enough in myself to prove my worth. But I've also become convinced that he has done so for me in his sacrifice on my behalf. I've been hopelessly trapped in sin or anger or bitterness or seeking approval. I've been helpless to face life. And yet... Christ came to save that life and restore it fully to me and to him. This is what it means to have the fear of the Lord before our eyes. All other fear starts to get cast out. And finally, when we're restored, this right view of God, we see who we are before him. The magnitude of his love for us leads us to what Philippians 2 describes as this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work to his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This doesn't say work for your salvation in fear and trembling. It says work out your salvation that you've already received with fear and trembling, implying that the fear of the Lord gives us a new confidence. We don't have to earn any salvation before God when we follow Christ. There's nothing more to gain Only the thing that we do is seek to attain more of what he's already been pouring out to us. And so the fear of the Lord gives us confidence, but it also tells us we can work out this gift of salvation so it does become fruitful in our lives here and now. Our lives now are not fixated on all the things we see around us and what we want. They become fixated on him and what he gives to us and how he works that out here and now just like that woman experienced in her life. We are always seeking to do the things that are pleasing to him. So friends, this is what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And as we go into all places and all things in all relationships, it's what will satisfy us, give us rest and make us happy. It's the only thing that can take center stage and not destroy us. So let's pray, let's give thanks to him and we'll take communion together. Lord, we thank you that this fear of the Lord gives us a newfound confidence an inward reverence and awe at who you are. We see you as one who is great and glorious, who has given such sacrificial love. And so we also pray, Lord, save us from ourselves. Save us for the first time and save us continually so that we might work out our salvation and see fruit in that day today as old fears and new fears are crushed under the weight of your love for us. How we need you. Be our help and our salvation. You're the Lord of all things, and so we we pray that you would work yourself out into every area of our life so that we no longer live in terror or no longer live in fear of what people think of us, but we always do what is pleasing to you because you succeeded on our behalf and credited to us the wealth that was already in your account. Thank you for liberating us from the fear of punishment and the fear of others. So we pray this in your name, giving you the glory. We honor you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus we pray.